I'm sure lots of you have heard of the Where's Waldo books that started coming out in the probably around the 80s and 90s. So you're looking at your sermon notes and thinking, I wonder where he's going to go with this message. But these were picture books, maybe some would call them coffee table books, that, uh, that weren't so much about a story, but they were more about a quest. Uh, every page had a picture of lots of different people, a whole crowd of people together somewhere, maybe it was on a beach or at a carnival or something like that, and the idea was to find a character named Waldo among this mass of people. Now, Waldo did stand out. He had red and a red and white shirt, usually, with a red and white hat and some big round glasses, but he was always very cleverly hidden or just kind of blended in with the rest of the people, so he really wasn't that easy to spot. It always took a while to find him, and, and that was exactly the point of the Where's Waldo books. Waldo was definitely in every picture. He was sure to be there, but he was never easy to find among all the other similar-looking, but not quite Waldo uh, people in that picture. A more basic form of that same kind of find-the-hidden-object game is word search puzzles. You've seen these. Uh, It's a big square with lots of letters, and within those massive letters are actual words that need to be identified and then circled. But when all those random letters are together, sometimes those words are not very easy to spot, especially the ones ones that kind of go from left to right the way you'd read. They'd be a little easier to spot, but the harder ones would be the ones that would go diagonally from right to left, top to bottom, right? Those would be a little bit more difficult. Well, this morning we want to work our way through another wisdom psalm where we find another quest. Wisdom psalms are one of the categories that have been identified within the book of psalms, uh, and we're going to try to make our way through a number of these this summer, and then we're going to look at a section in Proverbs as well that talk about wisdom, something that's easy to know about, but sometimes hard to find. And and we know that God has been kind to pass these uh, songs that make up the psalms down to us. We can all admit that we are constantly on a quest for wisdom. We have decisions to make every day, and we seek wisdom for various things, from uh, financial advice, from how to make a budget, to to do-it-yourself projects, to... uh, health tips, to parenting assistance, to help with relationships, to, to advice on vocation, to educational choices, you name it. We are always on a quest for wisdom, to, to try to figure out what the right thing to do, to, to wanting to make wise choices. But sometimes, even in our information age, wisdom, we can all admit, is very hard to find. Sometimes there's actually so much information that it's hard to know Uh, how to choose the best option. Wisdom can often seem to be very elusive. But wisdom comes even more elusive when it has to do with values or with the moral issues of our day. And like we saw, if you were here last week when we looked at Psalm 1, here too, our our world is filled with no shortage of counselors and advisors and and self-proclaimed experts. Whenever there's a uh, a mass shooting. We've seen a number of these in North America lately. News stations seek out experts 
on social psychology or on psychotherapy who try to figure out what happened in that, in that killer's past that would have made him act in that way. And they'll try to dig deeper and deeper and come up with all sorts of underlying reasons, maybe even excuses. Or they blame it on the laws of the land. In the end, there always seems to be lots of theories and speculations, but no real answers to why a person would do something that heinous. But what never seems to be brought up is that we are all morally depraved. And down deep, we are all capable of doing something like that. We think that way sometimes, we just don't act on it. Remember what Jesus said, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. And he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Sort of equates anger with murder. Because it's what goes on in our hearts. But that's just one example of a moral issue for which the world offers its answers, but it's missing one ingredient. And that is God. No one in the media ever, it seems, bothers to seek out God's opinion or bothers to look into God's word. And even when they do, it seems like they either uh, try to find the most liberal so-called theologian around who doesn't really have any answers to the problem of evil and just ends up babbling, or they find the most extreme right-wing so-called Christian who also misrepresents the Christian view. So when it comes to real wisdom, godly wisdom, it seems like there's lots of talk, lots of advice, lots of expertise, but no solid answers. We live in these kinds of confusing times. Lots of voices, lots of words, but not much in the way of godly, faith-based answers. People are looking, but wisdom seems to be elusive. In fact, sometimes it feels like it's actually disappeared from our view and is beyond our reach. But it's that same kind of setting that David writes about in Psalm 12. People there were searching for wisdom. And it seems to them like there was none to be found. But we'll find, but by the end of his song here, he, he came to understand that he needed to cry out to God. And when he did that, God's word would prove sufficient. So let me read for us Psalm 12 and encourage you to follow along as I read and then just keep your Bibles open there as we make our way through this psalm. So it says, To the choir master, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. 
It's really a lovely little psalm. It's basically just a cry out to God for rescue, for help. Save, O Lord. Save me, O God. For the godly, it's always comforting to know that we can come to God with our cares. We can ask him for help. The Bible says in another place that God is an ever-present help in times of trouble. As Christians especially, because Jesus has opened the way for us, we can go to God at any time for anything. And so here we have David saying, Save, O Lord, rescue me, O God. And it seems like he's crying out not so much for himself here, but for all the people of God at that time. He doesn't really use any personal words here. There's no, the Lord is my shepherd, I, I shall not want. He, he, he talks here about being among the children of man. So he's crying out to God on behalf of the people of God. But why does he say that they need help? What's he looking for God to do? What was the situation here? Well, look again at verse 1. How, sorry, save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. He notices, whatever his surroundings were, he notices an absence of anyone godly. He's looking for some godly advice, but he can't find any place to go or anyone to go to. The godly is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. He's telling God that they're feeling isolated. There's an absence of godliness and an absence of faithfulness, and he feels it. Sometimes we can feel like this as the people of God today. The church looks around at our culture, and it's starting to become clear that if we stand against the winds of our culture, we'll feel more and more alone and marginalized, isolated. If we listen to the voices of the world, we'll fit in, no problem. No one will bother us as long as we just keep our views to ourselves. But if we stand on God's word, we might start to get some pushback. That's sort of the situation that David was feeling for the congregation there. And you know, that kind of situation, when we're willing to stand against God's word, or for God's word, is actually one of those times when it's not a bad thing to feel alone. And it's never a bad thing to get to the point where we feel the need to cry out to God for help. So what is it that's making them feel this isolation? Well, we notice in verse 2 that it has to do with words, with, with their speech. One of the reasons he felt that sense of isolation is that he, he couldn't believe what he heard. Literally couldn't believe what he heard. There's a stark absence of pure words. The voices that surrounded the godly were untrustworthy. Verse 2, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. They speak. They lies. Is what's coming out of the lips. We don't know exactly what was going on here and what made David write this, but whatever it was, they, they just didn't know who to believe. There were lies, there were flattery, there was double talk. Either they were outright lying, but even when they were being nice, they couldn't be trusted. It was flattery. Their motives were self-serving. They would say something nice, but it was only to serve their, their, their own selves. Matthew Henry says that these kind of people will talk, with, talk to you with words that both kiss and kill. 
They will smile in your face and cut your throat. Someone talks to you like that, it's just confusing, isn't it? You don't know if someone is being sincere or, or not. It's like that smiling salesperson, right, who's super nice and friendly, but you're really never quite sure whether he's telling you the truth about that particular product. Or it's like the politician who always tells you, seems like what you want to hear, especially during election time. But in the back of your mind, you kind of wonder whether they actually mean what they say or whether they're actually going to follow through on their promises. You never quite know if they're sincere. At the end of verse 3 and 4, it tells us a little bit more about the motivations of the kind of people that that confuse people with their words. It talks about the tongue that makes great boasts. So not only are they liars and flatterers and double talkers, but they're also arrogant. These are the know-it-alls. Verse 4, those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, and our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Did you hear the pride in those words? We've got the right to say anything we want. We're not accountable to anyone except for ourselves. Who is master over us, they ask, rhetorically. Let me just say one thing about that, one piece of advice for people who want to assert their own authority and who put it in the form of a rhetorical question. The advice is that God might not actually take it rhetorically. God might just go ahead and answer that question for them. He might just show them who is master over everything and over everyone, and it likely won't be pretty. And so the issue here has to do with words, the things that were spoken, the things that were written. Today, we have multiplied words, 24-7 news and commentary and TV and, and internet, newspaper articles, weblogs, Twitter, all expressing opinions. And it's hard to sort it all out and to figure out who is actually speaking the truth. David came to the realization in his time there that everyone utters lies. So the issue was words. Interesting, in the New Testament, Paul warned Timothy about the same sort of thing, about the empty words of people around him. Turn for just a minute over to 1 Timothy, and then we'll look a little bit into 2 Timothy as well. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 The aim of our charge, Paul is writing to Timothy, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So we have vain discussions. They don't know what they're saying, but they're confident. They're boasting. Go over to chapter 6 and verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and, and so on. 
And then just over to the end of verse 20, right at the end of that letter, just the second half of that verse, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And just go over to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse, verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. In verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. That sounds similar to the complaint in Psalm 12. Swerving from the truth. Deceiving words. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so you've got this confusion that comes from people's words, from their commentary, from their, from their expertise, from their godless words. But just notice how Paul encourages Timothy. He's telling them not to all, let all that empty talk discourage him. If people want to confuse others with their worthless words, then you, Timothy, encourage them How? With sound words. Fight fire with fire. Fight words with words. And what kind of word did he have? He had the gospel. He had the scriptures. So go back again to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you uh, you will be a good servant of Christ, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Same chapter, verse 11. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, for your youth but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Go back to the second letter again in chapter 1, verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Chapter 3, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete for every good work. And then chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Fight words with words. That's the strategy. And that's the same place Psalm 12 gets. The situation there was a stark absence of pure, truthful words. But the last half of the psalm, verses 5 to 8, heralds the startling arrival of a pure word. And I say startling because it is unmistakable. 
It actually records the Lord now as speaking in verse 5. The words of the so-called wise are, are disaffecting the poor and, and the needy. And so the Lord is roused up. And he speaks and he says, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. So not only does this whole situation and all this lying and flattering and doublespeak and boasting cause the Lord to actually speak, but he thunders forth. He says, I will arise. Now, we know that God is always at work. God is always active. He always speaks through his word. But here it almost paints a picture for the benefit of us who are reading this of God almost being silent and sort of sitting and kind of watching what's unfolding. But when this save, O Lord, cry went up, and God sees the discouragement and the feeling of isolation and the, and the groaning of the needy, it stirs God up to say, I will now arise. And when God says something like, or, or maybe thunders forth something like that, it should and it will make everyone take notice. Charles Haddon Spurgeon calls this God's thunderous wrath. When God rises up, it will induce a sense of awe and a sense of fear. So you can be assured that if you're on the side of the godly, God is for you. And as Romans says, if God is for us, who can be against us? God will defend you. Of that you can be sure. And so God's word will procure a sure defense. And by that I mean that when God speaks, he will defend you. If you ever feel like you can't find a voice of reason, if you're ever groping for a word of wisdom from above, if you ever feel, have a feeling of hopelessness and, and confusion and you wish you could just hear some clarity and truth, this assures you that God will rise to your defense. And not only will he defend you, the best defense, as they say, is what? A good offense. He will act to silence the words of the self-styled wisdom of our age. Look back at his prayer there in verse 3. May the Lord cut off all the flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. God will cut off tongues and lips if he has to. He will silence the voices that confuse and deceive this tells you that you can actually pray just like this. You can pray for God to wreak some damage on those that deceive and flatter and boast. And then you can expect that God will act. I will now arise. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Verse 1 says, save, O Lord. Verse 5 gives, God answers, gives God's answer. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. God will deliver his people. He will now arise in his perfect timing. God will act. When your search for godliness and faithfulness is met with silence, cry out to God for help. And he will do exactly that. God's word will procure a sure defense for you. Second, God's word will prove dependable. While you can't ultimately trust in the world's wisdom, you can absolutely trust in God's wisdom. Look again at verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Here is the multiplied purity and preciousness of God's word. It is precious like silver, and it has been tested for purity not once, not twice, but seven times. Seven, a biblical 
symbol for perfection. God's word is precious. God's word is pure. God's word is perfect. And that's an especially helpful thing to know when all you hear are lies and flattery and double talk. When you don't know whether to trust people's words, uh, the wisdom that comes from this world. God's words are dependable because they are truthful. They are 100% pure. They can be trusted. God is always faithful to his word. Ever since the Bible has been uh, in, in its present form, people have tried to cast doubt on the truthfulness and the um, inerrant and infallible nature of God's word. Actually, it's not even since the formation of his word. We could actually say it's been happening since the beginning of time, right? Since the Garden of Eden, when the snake comes to the woman with these words, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He was trying to cast doubt on God's words. And right through until now, the Bible has been attacked on those same grounds. It is, is it really true? Are these actually God's words or just man's words? But the Bible has stood the test every single time. James Boyce says, The infidels of the ages have beat upon this rock, but the word of God stands firm. So when you come to the issues of our day and you hear things like, the Bible doesn't actually condemn this or that. Or you might hear something like, the Bible was written at a different time and for a different culture. You know, so we can just dismiss it as something that really isn't relevant for, for our enlightened times. But the world will never be able to silence God's word. And God's word will always pass the purity test. God always means what he says. And what he says is completely pure and pure, perfect and precious. That's a great comfort in, in a time of confusion and lies. His word can be trusted completely. God's word will procure a sure defense. It will always prove dependable and trustworthy. And finally, God's word provides shelter. Look again at verse 7. You, O Lord, will keep them, and will keep your words, and you will guard us from this generation forever. Again, amazingly comforting words. Uh, But just notice the change here that's happened since the beginning of the psalm. First, one thing that has not changed is that the bad guys are still around, right? Verse 8, on every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted in the children of man. And so really, the situation is still the same. Uh, When we look around, or, or, or when we listen, or when we read, there is godlessness and wickedness. It prowls around us with its lies and with its flatteries, with its arrogance. This is so true of our world. We, we live in a time when vileness is exalted. Is it not? It's celebrated? Do you think God's word is relevant for our time? According to verse 8 here, it definitely, most definitely is. Words that were taboo in public discourse 20 years ago are not only permitted now, but commonplace. Vileness is exalted. And so that part hasn't changed from the beginning of Psalm 12. But what has changed here is the perspective of the songwriter. Where at the beginning he seems sort of discouraged and abandoned, now as he has reflected on God's word, he can come to God and said, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. He knows God will never abandon his people. 
God's words are always true and they can always be found by all his people. God will always preserve his own. He will always keep his people. And he does that ultimately through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude 24, we sometimes read this verse as a blessing when we leave. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. God has sent his Son into a world that was absent from from, from godliness and faithfulness. He has not abandoned you. You are not alone. Just when things looked bleak, God came to the earth in the form of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was completely faithful, and he always spoke the truth. He was completely humble, even to the point of death on a cross. He became poor so that we might become rich. And just at the right time, he said, I will now arise. Didn't he? Through his death and through his resurrection, you can find safety. And he will keep you from stumbling and and guard you until he presents you blameless before the presence of God with great joy. He will save you if you cry out to him and if you repent and if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And then he will keep you. He will keep and shelter his people. So we live in a proliferation of words you are already a believer, what do you do with this? Well, I always encourage you to pay attention to the words that you allow to come into your personal space. Some ways you can't get away from lies and flatteries and people that talk out of both sides of their mouths. But as you are able and where you can control it, be wise and discerning in what you read, in the lyrics of the songs that you listen to in the language of the acquaintances that surround you at school or in the workplace or at the coffee shop or or at the movies or by the gossip that you are exposed to or text messages. Pay attention to words. And if you feel overwhelmed, make sure you go to the one place you know in which you will encounter true words and pure words. The words of the Lord are pure This is also a word for the church, for all of us collectively. We have enjoyed a lot of favor and a lot of freedom in, in our generation. But it looks more and more like those might soon be coming to an end. There is wickedness on every side. And it seems to be pressing in on us, pressing in on the church. Psalm 12 is a reminder that this reality should not sound a note of doom and gloom for us. God will hear our cries for help. He will eventually cut off all flattering lips. He, he will rise to our, offense, our, our defense. And we can take shelter and courage in God's word. God will keep us and guard us from this generation forever. He, he, he fortifies us with his word. Or in the words of Jesus for the church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Never. So let those words embolden us as a church to be strong and, create, and courageous and to stand on the rock of God's word. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you 
today for the, for the fact that wisdom is not elusive for your people. When the wisdom of this world proves to be empty, your word proves itself to be pure, proves itself to be trustworthy. So we thank you that we can know for sure, based on the words of this beautiful song, you take the cause of your people. You are not silent. You have not vanished. You come to us through your Son. Thank you. And you dwell with us now through your Spirit. How grateful we are for those wonderful truths, those wonderful realities. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.